0: Europe suffers in the midst of record-breaking droughts, wildfires and heatwaves. Climate scientists say we need to adapt to the new reality. How do we prepare our cities and change our behaviours to cope with extreme weather patterns? This is Inside Story. Hello there and welcome to the programme, I'm Laura Kyle. Adapting to climate change is no longer an option, it's an obligation. That's the warning from France's Green Transition Minister as people in Europe experience record-breaking droughts, wildfires and heat waves. The European Drought Observatory has recorded water shortages on more than half of the continent. Meteorologists have warned this could be the worst drought in 500 years. In Germany, water levels in the Rhine have fallen so low that cargo ships are having to reduce their loads. The lack of rain in Italy has devastated its agricultural heartland, and parts of the UK have imposed water restrictions. Rory Challens reports.
1: Nice weather for ducks is what they say in England when it rains. Well, this is anything but. It's the driest summer for 50 years. Grass has shrivelled to straw, the ground has cracked, Reservoirs and rivers are low, and drought has officially been declared across large parts of England. In some areas, there are water companies bringing in place, for instance, temporary use bans, so-called hosepipe bans. That's the right thing for those companies to do where they have particular concerns. Uh, And it's a small sacrifice for people to make in order to ensure that we've got adequate water resources next year. From space, the parched conditions are just as obvious. The picture on the left is July last year, a normal enough summer. On the right, August 2022, from greens to browns and yellows. A couple of months ago, where I'm standing now would have been the water line of Rushmere Pond on Wimbledon Common. But now look at it, you have to go a good 15 or so meters this way to get to the new water line. This pond is now little more than a puddle And this is happening across large parts of the country, with water systems like this becoming extremely stressed. Stressed enough here for the fish to barely have enough water to cover them. It's worrying stuff for anyone paying attention.
2: I find it very sad. Why? The the, 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 bird you know, nature, the ground is so hard. The birds can't have the worms, there's
3: nothing around when you see things like that pond you you realize how different it is in this grain of the grass and yeah quite is serious does it, it worry you
1: uh it starts to hit home last month england experienced its hottest ever temperature 40.3 degrees the 10 hottest years since 1884 have all happened since 2002 and none of the coldest this summer may turn out to be an anomaly but the data suggests not And that means more fires, more extreme temperatures, and more droughts to come. Rory Challens, Al Jazeera, London.
0: Well, hot and dry conditions are fanning the flames of wildfires in France, Spain, and Portugal. Hundreds of crews are trying to control a huge blaze in southwestern France. The EU's Earth Observation Programme says large swathes of the continent and North Africa are at risk of catching fire. let's now bring in our guests all of them joining us from london today we have Giulio boccaletti a visiting senior fellow at the euro mediterranean center on climate change claire farrell is the co-founder of extinction rebellion that's a movement that advocates for action on climate change and elon kelman a professor of disasters and health at university college london a very warm welcome to all of you Uh, julia there have been warnings about climate change for decades and yet Would it be fair to say that somehow we've been caught off guard by this extreme weather in Europe?
3: Yes, well, great to be here with you. Uh, Yes, it's true. We've known uh, that uh, things like this would happen since uh, probably the late 70s. That was the first time we had a report telling us that the climate system would change. And when the climate system changes, uh, extreme events uh, can change in frequency and severity. And in all likelihood, that is uh, what we are seeing today. There's probably a signature of uh, changing climate in the events of this uh, summer. So at one level, you might say that we, we shouldn't have been surprised that this would happen and we should have been prepared. Uh, but the reality is that there are two things going on. One is the climate system is changing. But the other thing that we're seeing is the failure of the institutions and infrastructure that we've set in place over the last hundred years to deal with the variability uh, of the climate system. Uh, you know, drought is a natural phenomenon, but scarcity, that's, uh, that requires us making some mistakes. And I think what's become evident this summer is that the infrastructure that we have in Institutions that we use to manage our resources are simply no longer fit for purpose. If this uh, anomaly is the normality of 2040 or 2050, uh, then we have to really change things.
0: Mm. And we'll certainly get into ways that we need to adapt to later in discussion. Ilan, first of all, could you just expand for us on the far-reaching effects that droughts have? Because this is something that we're not that used to in Europe. As, as Julio says, you know, our systems aren't set up for these kinds of extreme weather. Can you just explain to us what a drought is, what it does beyond giving you a brown lawn in your back garden?
2: Drought is, in effect, lack of water, not enough water. But it's not just about rainfall or, in other places, snowmelt. It's also about the amount of water that we are using or, in fact, overusing. So, we've known for decades that droughts happen. That's always the case regarding rainfall variations. We've not set up our water systems and our water management systems to be able to appropriately deal with these variations. We have more people. We're using more water. A lot of the pipes are old in the UK and so they are leaking. This means that drought in itself is quite difficult to understand given that, yes, Absolutely. The changing rainfall makes a huge difference, as does the heat, because that means that more is evaporating when it comes to actual water use or overuse. Then we very much need to look to ourselves directly to ensure that we don't cause, create a drought, an absence of water, no matter what the rainfall is or is not doing.
0: And if we do, Ilan, what's going to happen? We're already seeing... Um, Farmers saying that their yields are going to be down. We're seeing transportation problems in rivers, shortage of power supplies. Can you just expand to us what, what it actually means to be in a state of drought?
2: So this is a challenge. It is going to result in less electricity. It could be rolling blackouts. It could be less supply available. If we turn out to a situation where we cannot use the normal river systems that we use to bring to move food around, then there could be food shortages and supply shortages. It also means that we have to recognize uh, that when we do need to drink a lot in the heat and humidity, we're continuing to use water, and it is absolutely devastating for the farmers who are being hit in so many other ways. They are the ones feeding us. And so it's not just about transporting food, it's also about ensuring that we can grow the food. Again, so much of this comes down to water management. Mm. Why are we using it to make lawns green with artificial plants, rather than supporting our farmers? Why are we so reliant on systems like rivers, which fluctuate anyway, recognizing that extremes happen. So it really is about long-term changes to society, so we live better, healthier and safer, safer, no matter what the water or rainfall does or does not do.
0: So Claire, why is it, do you think, that we have ignored all the warnings? Why have we not set up better water management systems?
4: Well, I think the first thing to say about why we're ill-prepared for this is because there's been a generations-long campaign of lies and misinformation to make sure that people don't take this problem seriously. We're living in the the wake of the success of what the fossil fuel sector have done, uh, certainly throughout my lifetime. It's been very difficult to find um, a a space until very, very recent years where people would admit that climate change is definitely being caused majority by carbon emissions, majority by the fossil fuel sector. So that's been a massive problem. But then on top of that, you also have an economic system which is uh, set up to um, engage in in perpetual growth on a finite planet. And that is working alongside an economic political system, sorry, which is um, short termist by its um, design. And so you know, Extinction Rebellion, when we first came out, I think the, the lesser-known kind of demand of ours was for um, a citizen's participation in democracy, for a citizen's assembly, where ordinary people would be furnished with all of the evidence from 360 degrees of all of the issues, and they would be able to... Design uh, the radical campaign, the radical um, policy uh, strategy that you would need to implement rapid decarbonisation in a fair and just way and to keep everybody as safe as possible and to minimise the risk and the harms that. we know are baked in. And so it's a, I would say it's an intersection of of multiple systems that are completely incompatible with solving inter, in in, in quotes, solving, you can't solve this crisis. But, you know, it's incompatible with, with dealing with this, basically. Do you feel that
0: it was, it has been up to now quite difficult for the general public, for all of us to grasp climate change? Because it was, it felt like it was some distant threat in the future. It wasn't here and now. But, Now, it is actually here and now, as we heard from uh, Rory's report, the man saying it starts to hit home when you can actually see what is happening. So you do feel that now it might be a bit easier to force change?
4: Well, I think now it's obvious, um, you know, that the the things that we've been anticipating and people have been talking about yeah they're here and they're not just here in the world as they have been for a long time in the majority world but they're here on our doorsteps in europe and in america and so on so yes it's easier because you don't have to have the kind of um inane argument about Mm -hmm. whether or not it's real whether or not it's going to happen but the problem is that by the time you're feeling these effects it's arguably far far too late to begin acting so we are we are past the deadline for taking action, and we really, really need to act like that. You know, so it's no longer a case of let's work out how to do the most rapid mitigation, but we also have to do the most rapid adaptation. You know, the the Environment Agency in the UK released a a press release last year, which really caught my attention. The title was Adapt or Die. Mm -hmm. And what they were basically saying was we won't be able to help lots of communities because too many are going to be affected by devastating floods and devastating impacts from extreme weather and the impacts of climate change. And so, we know that this country is woefully underprepared and we've had, you know, lots and lots and lots of warnings. But as with lots of things we can see in politics at the moment, the the people in in power in this country don't seem to want to uh, uh, prepare to to weather shocks uh, that they know fine well are coming. Uh, Julio,
0: do you agree with that? Do you feel that this government, especially let's look at the UK as we're all in London, or you're all in London, do you feel that it does uh, feel an urgency to this problem does it feel an urgency to adapt?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's a common problem. It's not just the UK, I think Mm. across Europe and indeed uh, in the United States. We just have lost the um, habit of thinking about the landscape and that has very practical financial implications. I mean, it used to be the case that the amount of investment that went into the landscape to construct the sort of infrastructure that now is failing was very significant. It was a significant amount of money that you need to spend in order to uh, change the landscape and capture water when there is and deliver it where you need it and manage, for example, a transition of the agricultural system. Over the last 20-30 years that's kind of gone out of fashion along with uh, the state's intervention in the basic infrastructure of society and so you know we, we sort of know you know this type of problem we know how to solve that, that is a combination as Dylan was saying of uh, infrastructure and different management modes right it's this is not a mystery how you solve this uh, but until we pay attention and we start also devoting resources to it uh, we won't solve it. I should say though one last thing on this this, which is whilst we're all fixated on Europe, we ought to remember that, for example, in the Horn of Africa, 18 million people are food insecure uh, and going through a famine because of droughts Mm. hitting that part of the world. And that part of the world has nothing close to the infrastructure and institutions that we benefit from uh, in Europe and to me that is where the real catastrophe is happening we'll be sort of able at least in the short term to eventually manage the change in climatology of the next uh, decades but they're you know they're not they're struggling today right so we also have to keep an eye on the rest of the world mm. as we see our own problems
0: i'm interested julia that you used the word solve because that's exactly what claire said we couldn't do in this situation But you seem to think we can do. There
3: is hope. Uh, It depends on what problem you're talking about. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we've, uh, you know, I just wrote a book on water, on the 10,000 years history of our relationship with water. And it's a dialectic relationship. We've always been in this dialogue and this dance between our expectations of what normality looks like, the investments that we can make on the landscape to transform it, to cater to those expectations and the reality of the climate system. So solving it is not about, you know, uh, fixing what we want and then just turning the environment around us so that it delivers whatever we need, Uh, solving it also means adjusting and adapting our behaviours and changing what we grow where and changing some of our habits, right? So I I think the question of adaptation is not one of fix what you have today, just figure out a way of delivering. I think the question of adaptation is how do we live differently in a world uh, that feels different from maybe what we had 20 years ago?
0: But I guess that's the crux of it, isn't it, Ilan? How do we live differently? It is notoriously difficult to get people to change their habits, change their behaviours. How do we get people to do that when it comes to water?
2: This is where it's a balance of trying to ensure that people understand the science and are willing to follow it, as well as top-down legislation. So it is difficult to get people to change in a wholesale way. When they recognise that they are going to be healthier, they'll be safer, they're going to save money, lives will be better, this is how we actually bring people on board. And despite the difficulties, despite their urgency, we do have a long history of improving society. When it comes to equality and equity, we have a long way to go. But on the other hand, we have come also from a long way and made vast improvements. If we look at other major risks, such as smoking, mm. smoking indoors in most public places is not permitted in the UK across Europe, but unfortunately it, it does happen in other places. Road safety. The devastation of vehicle crashes is something which we really have to tackle, again, with huge urgency, but we have made huge strides in the UK and across Europe regarding that. They have been too slow. All of these have almost been generational. We don't have that time. So it's about saying, look, things are difficult. There is urgency for change. But people are willing to do it when they recognize that it helps themselves and therefore helps others. It's part it's part of saying, well, what governments do we want to vote for? Who do we want to elect to ensure that the laws and the monitoring and enforcement are there? And drawing on the whole host of long-term examples where we've seen successes to do far, far better than we are doing now. But ensuring that there's a lot of hope there and a lot of so many local inspirational examples from what's called guerrilla gardening, where people take over dead space in cities like London and grow fruit and vegetables mm. to some incredibly progressive climate change related legislation, which has changed our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Claire, do you think that people are willing to change their behaviours, or do you think there's going to need a carrot and stick approach? I mean, we look at seatbelt wearing, we look at smoking, all of it came with punitive measures, it came with government bans, very clear policy guidelines that force people to change their behaviours. Do we need that as well as greater education?
4: Well, you probably at this point need both and um, and an enormous amount more creativity because as i say we're we're so far down the road but we mm. did see in covid for example what people were willing to do when it came to supporting people in their local community when they realized that the you know people needed to to pull together and you can see in lots of scenarios that certain people in our in our sort of movement landscape that like very much to to focus on the goodness of people's responses to disasters and to and to social difficulties rather than just solely to the sort of um negative effects. But the thing that's completely lacking in almost every place where I can look, and definitely in this country for a long time, is a thing called leadership. You Mm. need to show the public good information that they can trust. There needs to be a public information campaign so that people understand the realities of what's actually happening with climate change. And then, for example, whilst you're having a conversation about the problems farmers are facing with their, with their um, water supplies and not being able to irrigate crops, well, it would be really useful then to talk about the emissions of farming, the transition that's needed in agriculture, the part that plays in making the world hotter. And so all of these conversations you could see in the public space, they could be tied around in a a much more useful way so that the public can join all the dots and understand Mm. where where are the impacts coming from and what do we need to change and how do we need to change it and how quickly do we need to change it. But the problem that we've got here and probably in lots of other parts of the world as well is this total deterioration of trust in politics. And I think this recent administration in this country has absolutely denigrated public and political life. And so... That's a massive problem because where we need leadership, we don't just not have it, but we also don't have the trust in the systems that are supposed to provide it. So even if someone shows up and shows good leadership, the public are now going to be very suspicious. Well, should we trust them? Are they like the last person? You know, are they telling us the truth about this issue? And do they even understand it? You know, lots of British MPs don't even understand climate change, really. I've spoken to some of them. I know people who've had in-depth conversations mm. and there is no mandatory requirement for the okay. people who are leading this country Julia, to actually understand the problems. Julio, do you agree
0: with that? Do you agree that we are facing a lack of leadership when we need it most? And if so, where does that come from? I'm looking uh, particularly at Athens, which is just a designated Europe's first chief heat officer, a woman who's very inspirational and is focused purely on adapting the city to rising temperatures. That's the kind of leadership I assume that uh, Claire might be talking about. We don't see any of that in the UK and much of Europe. Where does it come from? How do you get it?
3: Well, I mean, I think both Claire and and Ilana are right in emphasising the fact that this is ultimately a political... Uh, issue that requires political leadership because it's about how we're going to live together in the landscape uh, going forward. And so you need leadership and you also need institutions. And institutions include the kind of of positions that you just described in Athens. But there's one thing that's particularly important to note here, which is you need leadership in particular because you need to sustain focus and commitment to this issue through crises and out of crises, right? Because rains will come. This drought will pass. Mm. But the problem will not, right? So the, the idea that the catastrophe is the only symptom of the problem is a mistake. This drought will end. People will forget that the summer was as catastrophic as this. There may be another one in a few years. But the kind of solutions that we need, the kinds of investments in infrastructure, in agronomy, uh, in management that we need, require sustained commitment. And so they require a story and they require political and institutional leadership. And so that's, you know, frankly, in all of us. It's on the kind of activism that Claire does, is on the scholarship that Elon pursues and it's on the writing that I do. Everyone of us has a responsibility to try and raise the profile of this so that we can start describing what the leadership needs to look like.
0: Claire, while we wait for that leadership, what can we do as individuals to combat droughts like these? What what, what water usages can we change?
4: Well, I'm I'm not an expert on how you reduce your water consumption. I certainly don't... um, don 't think that there are uh, super easy ways for the majority of people to to change their water usage beyond you know being mindful of the ways that they that they use in their home and particularly on their garden as, as people have rightly said you know it 's not a priority to keep your lawn um, in perfect condition um, at times like these, but as you might expect my my argument is going to be that the biggest thing that you can do against these things is to go and join movements and to make very very loud and clear the political um, requirement to respond to, to climate and ecological crises, and for the people to show um, the strength of, uh, of force, that they that they will demand the changes to happen. And if the people in charge won't make those changes happen, the people are going to have to pull together to make a lot of changes happen. And I think there's um, a growing sort of uh, inspiration amongst people in, in our movements to start to take action which is constructive and to take action together which is community focused and community led and to you know try and build uh, collective power from, from the ground up because we're not going to see as, as, as has been said the end of, of these kinds of uh, impacts and they're also going to get worse they're guaranteed to get worse for some mm. time even if we do reduce emissions and we're going to be going through these like progressive kind of crises including wars including food shortages and all of the kind of international difficulties that are going to come with um, scarcity and and the resulting impact. So, yeah, uh, it's about people power for us. And please uh, do join uh, XR if you can. Okay,
0: (laughs) thanks for that. Uh, Ilan, last word to you. Are you optimistic that we can make the necessary changes, that we can adapt to this new reality?
2: I don't see that there's any other choice except to be optimistic. It's exactly as being discussed. We need the leadership. It's up to us to decide the leadership. We also have to make changes that give people alternatives. If we were going to price petrol accurately according to its costs, that would make it unaffordable for many. So we need to ensure that we have public transit. That means it's up to us to make the demands for what we need. We can do that by being optimistic, by being inspirational. Because the only other choice is to give up and say it's just hopeless, why bother? And I am not going to do that.
0: Okay. Many thanks to all our guests, Julio Boccaletti, Claire Farrell and Ilan Kelman for joining us today. And thank you too for watching. You can see the programme again anytime by visiting our website, that's Jazeera.com, And for further discussion, do go to our Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. We are at AJ Inside Story. From me, Laura Kyle and the whole team here in Doha. Bye for now.